Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. Uh, that is uh, going to be a hard one. It is the shortest, uh, shortest Old Testament book. It is uh, only 21 verses long. Uh, we're going to be looking at Obadiah 1 through 9, verses 1 through 9, and it's on page 880. If you're going to use the Red Pew Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. I'd like to, uh, I would like to read the whole book, but I think I'll, I'll refrain from doing that this morning, but I will read at least the first eight, ver uh, verse nine verses that we're going to look at this morning. And I will say, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah in my whole Christian upbringing. And my parents, my father was a pastor. I, was, I grew up in church I, as my earliest memories. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah. Has anyone else heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah in their life? Could anyone... Okay, we're all here together, all right? We're all beginners together. Uh, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. How, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Once upon a time, there was a chick. This chick came in a pack of four chicks to her adoptive home. The shopkeeper at the tractor supply told her new owners that she was a she. How did the shopkeeper know? Well, by spreading the wings, of course, looking at the new growth that was coming. Uh, the chicks' new owners dutifully took the four chicks home and got a heat lamp, and all the paraphernalia that was involved in starter feed and, and waited for her to grow. About seven to eight weeks on, she was beginning to look like a he. 
And upon discovery of an enlarged cob, wobbles, and pronounced tail feathers, he, who has always been a he, was named Washington. He was well-named, a more magnificent bird you had never seen, standing head and shoulder above all the others. He had a radiant cape, a tail feathers that were sharp and well-formed beak. He was destined to win the blue ribbon at the state fair. Washington was very responsible. He took care of his nice little harem of seven hens. Yet Washington had a problem. He had become proud. He had become proud. Ironically, his pride made him very, very insecure. And whenever his owners would come into the pen to bring food, and he got anxious. He forgot that those who brought him his own food also owned him. He ought never to have bit the hand that had fed him. He began to jump at and to charge and to peck at his benevolent owners. Sadly for Washington, his pride would be his undoing. He became delusional. I own the pen, he thought. And these were his girls, he thought. Uh, but because of his pride, there was no longer a reason for him to be. And the moral of the story is, it's better to pluck your pride before you are plucked. Human pride, let alone rooster pride, is destructive to all relationships. Obadiah addresses pride, the pride of life, which competes with God and His sovereignty, it actually compels us to consider our own hearts to see whether or not we are properly standing before the Lord or we're trying to assert ourselves above Him. Pride is a menace which deforms us spiritually. It's something that actually is thought to be the root below all other types of sins like envy, like jealousy. Sometimes we say, well, that pride is the root of these sins. But there is actually a root cause for pride. And we ought to ask ourselves, where does this cocky attitude come from? Well, pride actually comes from an absence of a reverence for the Lord, an absence for the reverence of the Lord. An absence of the fear of the Lord is to live one's life as if God is not. Little or no thought of God, perhaps not even thinking about His will, not thinking about His glory, not thinking about being dependent upon Him. These attitudes are reflective of someone who is not thinking about God at all. They are ungodly. We might meet lots of nice people in the world who are very friendly people, very courteous, very helpful, but God is really not a part of their thinking. And it is true, they may be nice, but they are ungodly at root. They're not thinking about His glory. They're not thinking about His will. They don't even think that they're dependent upon Him for anything. It's an ungodliness that is foundational underneath 
and it is the basic attitude of an absence of a reverence for God. And that is what fuels pride. It's disastrous. When we don't take the Lord's existence and His authority into account, we become filled with pride, but then we become anxious, we become angry, we become selfish, we become discontent, we become frustrated, we become critical, we grow impatient, and we envy one another. All of these ungodly attitudes grow inside us because we ignore what God says about who He is. He tells us very clearly that there is no other God out there but Him. That's what the first commandment says. You shall have no other gods before me, and if you neglect Him, you assert yourself to be your own God. And so we really need to hear the message of Obadiah this morning because among the ways that God has chosen to communicate with people is through visions. God could certainly use angelic messengers, and He has. He has at times used dreams. He has used audible voices. Yet for Obadiah, He has given him a penetrating vision of something that was going to happen to Edom in the future if they did not get off their high horse, if they did not remove this attitude of pride in ignoring the reality of the sovereign God of the world. The vision of Obadiah motivated him to preach a sermon about pride. In the last half of this text in the last half of the whole little book, you get to see some of the implications of what that pride is going to do to those people, and the just vengeance of the Lord will burn and consume them. But it's really important that we not be like Edom, that we remove God from our thinking, but that we put Him at the center of our thinking, that we are consumed with His glory, His will, recognize our dependence upon Him, that is critical to defray the attitude of pride and a whole host of sins that come with it. So, we're going to be thinking about pride more particularly this morning in this text. Pride, first of all, causes us to be deceived. It causes us to be deceived. Verses 1 through 4, particularly if you see verse 3, it's very explicit. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. It's deceived you. Pride is systemic. I think we've heard a lot about that word in popular discourse lately, but it is truly something that is contagious within all of humanity, and there was a systemic pride that was inherent in Abraham's family. It might be hard for us in America, where the melting pot of the globe, as it were. Family lines all come, and we all mesh into one family, so to speak, here in America. It's hard for us at times to think about a country being a descendant from a particular person. Yet Edom, as a nation, was a descendant 
directly from one of Abraham's children, grandchildren, whose name was Esau. Jacob and Esau, direct descendants of Abraham, Jacob and Esau were unidentical twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was Abraham's son. Isaac's father was Abraham, as I said, and Abraham and Isaac both had difficulty fathering children. Barrenness was true for them as it is true for many people, even in our age. It's historically been a true thing throughout the history of the world. But let's go back to Abraham and Sarah and consider that they were told that they were going to be parents, and Isaac was going to be their promised child. But they had a problem, as I said. They couldn't even conceive one child. They had been promised a multitude of nations to come out of him, but he couldn't even conceive one child. And as they considered this problem and the aging of Sarah, under a weight of anxiety of waiting and waiting and waiting, they decided that they would help God along. As if God was impotent. And Sarah gave her servant girl to Abraham's embrace. After all, she rationalized, this is something that all the nations do. Surrogacy is very normal, and when conception's not working, let's just do what they do. And in absence of reverence for God's will, His glory, and in absence of a dependency upon God, Sarah and Abraham went out on their own and decided to do something independent of what God had told them He would do. Her pride, her pride and her ingenuity eventually deceived her and became her undoing. She thought she had enough wisdom to be able to work this out for God, and pride swelled in her heart, and her pride led to lots and lots of emotional turmoil in her own family. See, in his own time, in his own way, God was going to give the promised child when he said he would give that promised child. Isaac was that promised child. Now, Isaac himself married a woman named Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah were told as well, they had heard the stories that out of the, out of the, the generations of Abraham, there would be multitudes of, 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 of uh, nations come out of him. But here was the problem. Rebekah had a hard time conceiving. But with less drama, thankfully, Isaac prayed for his wife, and she conceived. Yet in her womb, there was this turmoil. There was something going on that was unexpected. There were twins in her womb. And it became revealed to her that God had decreed that the younger son, Jacob, would be the heir of the promise of a multitude of nations, and not Esau. The prophecy was irrevocable, and it caused problems for Isaac and Rebekah, because as the boys grew, Isaac began to favor his older son Esau. Isaac was 
interested in a son who was like a champion, a mighty man in the field, a great and skilled hunter. Rebecca doubted on Jacob the younger. He stayed close to the tents, and he was more, you know, relationally connected with his mother. And as the two boys grew, there was all kinds of favoritism, there was all kinds of trauma, and real drama that was created in that family. Well, the problem developed, and Isaac decided that he would help God's promise along too. He decided that he would go ahead and bless without God's permission or instruction. He would give the blessing to his oldest son, the one that he loved more dearly. Rebecca heard what was going on and said, I'm going to make sure that this doesn't happen. I'm going to step in and I'm going to dress up my younger son in such a way that he can go in and fool my husband and he will receive the blessing. It was a disaster. It was all ungodly pride, fueling an absence for recognition of God's will. The problem is that these kinds of approaches become systemic over time, and they grow, and they blossom, and they show up in future generations. And the rivalry that existed between Esau and Jacob continued all the way up to the days of Obadiah. Edom, as a nation, ought to have been friendly and careful in receiving refugees that were fleeing from Jerusalem as Babylon came in and destroyed them. Instead, they blockaded the roads, they turned everyone back towards the captors who were going to bring them to exile or slaughter them in the streets. That cold-hearted pride caused them to see their brethren tortured and abused and captured. That's systemic. We look at the issues that exist even today in the Middle East, and they are truly systemic. Now, systemic pride occurs often because it rests in the illusion of power. Verses 3 through 4, there is this illusion that that power can do to a person. Uh, Notice in verse 3 it says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, power causes us all to be deceived, thinking that we will never fall. And in these verses, there are two illustrations of the kinds of deception, the things that create deception. First, Edom was geographically located in a very difficult place for invaders to enter and to capture. The ancient city of Petra was carved basically into the mountains, and you can go and see the remains of it even today as a tourist. But the word Petra means rock. Now, this site was actually made very popular by the, the, the Indiana Jones uh, Chronicles in the Last Crusade, where this was filmed here. But these lofty dwellings were dug into the clefts of the rock. They created this illusion that we are invincible. Ancient Babylon 
ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, ancient Persia, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the modern Germans, and even the United States, we develop systems of power that which potentially can create an illusion as if we may be impregnable. These lofty dwellings were often inhabited by eagles. Eagles have long been a, a symbol of power. And all of the nations that I just, re- just named, including our very own the United States, has embraced the eagle as an emblem of power. It's a generic symbol, and in some ways, the eagle, if you will, is like a baton. It's a baton because as, as each country claims to have like, received like, the final dispensation of power, they're like holding a baton, not realizing that one day they may have to give that baton to someone else. The power may not always be at the top. It may be moved from the one who's just below looking to take the next place. There is no guarantee that the country that currently holds the baton will keep holding the baton. Power is real, but unfortunately, it promises us something that's completely undeliverable. We might have the ability here in America to set ourselves among the stars. After all, we have the Space Force. But who owns the stars? And who can command the stars to fall at any moment? The one who made the stars. Edom thought that it was invincible. But history tells us that they're now just ruins. See, pride can cause us to deceive, but it also can cause us to be dumb. Sorry for that indelicate word. It's about the only word that I could come up with that also was started with a D. Pride causes us to be dumb, to be overconfident. In verse 7, verse 7, we see, All your allies have driven you to your border, and those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. They were overconfident, and it led to foolish, in the end, decision-making. Now, Obadiah lets Edom know they have an opportunity to humble themselves, and they don't have to go through this process of being destroyed for their foolishness. He gets, gives them a glimpse and says, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be thieves, as it were, coming in at night, and they're going to leave nothing behind in your mountains. They're going to be like greedy grape harvesters who come in and they take all the grapes and they don't leave anything behind. I don't know if you have a bowl of grapes in your house. Now, the first day that a bowl of grapes is presented to a family, it looks beautiful, doesn't it? But then after a day or two of the, the, those harvesters plucking out all those grapes in the bowl, It looks pretty nasty, actually. It starts to shrivel up, and there's like one or two grapes by day three. And you're looking at those grapes, and you're like, is food poisoning worth it? Pride causes us to be dumb. 
That which looks beautiful and tantalizing on day one will fade to nothing by day three. Now, I'm not an expert in world diplomacy. I'm just simply an observer. But in my opinion, when Nixon went to China, we were had. We were cocky because we had just won the space race. We had set our flag in the stars. I think the theory of going to China was to split the axis between Russia and China. China was actually supposed to become more democratic, but I think that we as the United States of America have become less democratic over the last 30 or 40 years. American influence in Africa, South America has been in retreat. China has been on the ascendancy. Every year we lose between 225 and 600 billion dollars worth of intellectual property every year. Siphoning off technology through outright espionage and theft. See, pride can cause us to become pillaged by our frenemies. Are we not being plundered today? Again, I'm not an expert in world diplomacy. I'll leave that to others. But it is possible that we have allowed ourselves to become plundered because we have been a proud people. And pride generates a cocky attitude like Washington the rooster. The once glorious eagle becomes a stupid chicken. Or worse, it becomes a turkey. Pride clouds our minds, compounding our ungodliness. Pride can cause us not to listen to those with more life experience. For example, God has given you parents, teens, and young adults, they've given you, you've been given parents for the purpose of providing you some mentorship. We may not always have had the parents that we have wanted, and often they tell us not what we want to hear, but they often will tell us what we need to hear. Pride can cause us to be dumb. But pride ultimately comes from the absence of a reverence for the Lord. Pride causes us to be destroyed, and this is the emphasis in verses 8 and 9. I'll read them again. It says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understand out of, understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Now, that word, Teman, is interesting because in the book of Job, one of Job's friends, whose name was Eliphaz, came to bring comfort to the grieving Job, and he is described as being a Temanite, or from this region of Edom. And he was coming as a wise man. Now, I think this might be almost an irony in the process of, of 
of describing these people who lived in Edom, who perhaps were known for being wise, knowing how to navigate international trade and currents and avoiding of armies and they were not consumed by the world powers as they would go along the, the silk trade route over to Egypt. And Edom, I believe, truly was known for its wise men. Yet wise men do not overplay their hand, because overplaying your hand or your position is so disastrous. One only needs to look to the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, whose pride hardened his heart and realized that you can overplay your hand. If you think about the events that occurred, it's often pretty easy to sit in condemnation of Pharaoh and realize and neglect the fact that we also have a heart that can harden just as hard as Pharaoh. Moses came to his courtroom He had been shepherding, shepherding. He had once been considered the heir to the throne. He comes into Pharaoh's courtroom and informs Pharaoh that he should let God's people go. If he doesn't let God's people go, he's going to suffer the consequence of his own pride. At what point, I want to ask you this question, at what point would you have humbled yourself and let God's people go. I mean, would it be after the water had turned to blood? What about the frogs? How about the gnats? How about the horse flies? How about the death of your livestock? Oh, I surely would have done it after the boils. What about the hail? What about the locusts? What about impregnable darkness? Would it take the death of your firstborn? Why do you think you're better than Pharaoh? Pharaoh hardened his heart against God but he also hardened his heart against his neighbors. You might think yourself, you know, the frogs, that would definitely do it. But why do you harden your heart against your neighbor? Edom hardened his heart against his neighbor and great atrocity was done. You know, when a person first feels a bad spirit against another person, they have an opportunity. They have an opportunity to put that away and not allow it to grow and harden their heart. And I would encourage you You might think, like Pharaoh, oh, I can decide at any point I want to, to overcome this. Don't be so foolish. If you give way to a bad attitude and allow it to permeate and take a stronghold in your heart, 
then you're going to be in a very perilous place before God. Twenty years of cherishing a bad spirit toward another person will not cause it to grow less. It's going to cause it to grow more. Is it possible that in pride you have forgotten that God sees all and you're not living for His glory or His will? This animosity that's in your heart will grow. It will seek every opportunity to nurse its own wounds. It will engage in backbiting. It will defame other people. Or even worse, it might even get to the point where you want to take their life. Oh, you wouldn't do that, but are you doing it inside your heart? That's how initial have added, a bad attitude becomes a hard heart. It starts small. The river turned to blood. That's kind of big, but relatively small when you compare that to the firstborn whose life is taken at the end. Pride will not let your neighbor go. And I want to say that again. Pride will not let your neighbor go. You will enslave them in your heart and in your mind. And you will not let them go. Do you really think that you are better than Pharaoh? Matthew 7 says, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my heavenly Father. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do money works in your name? And then I will look at them, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Pride comes from the absence of a reverence for the Lord. Pride causes us to be deceived. It causes us to be dumb. And it will cause us to be destroyed. Esau is the father of a proverb. He's an illustration of what happens to a person who allows a root of bitterness to take root, to grow, to blossom. He was a cocky young man who shot from the hip, and he asked questions later. He traded his birthright for a single meal because he did not take the Lord seriously. He was a profane man because he didn't take the Lord seriously. And when we don't take the Lord's existence and authority into account, all 
kinds of wickedness takes over our lives. Ungodly attitudes like bitterness grow inside because we ignore the fact that God is who He says He is. There is no other God before me. I am the only true and living God. And God has no patience for those who put themselves in the place of God. He has no patience for proud people. And we ought to beware that we do not join the ranks of Pharaoh, that we do not join the ranks of Esau, or the ranks of Washington, the chicken. Instead, Paul encourages us, let each of you look not only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. Humility recognizes the preeminence of God. A challenging message this morning, but not one without hope, because if we do humble ourselves, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a merciful and gloriously gracious high priest He gave himself because he knew our frame, he knew our propensity towards pride, and he wants us to come to him. And so he invites us, and I invite you, to humble yourself and come, come quietly to his feet. He will lift you up and he will sustain you. Let's pray.